Welcome to Westminster this noon hour. My name is Donald Meisel. I minister to the Westminster congregation. Today marks the third in our current series of six noon town hall forums. Each of them is gathered around the broad rubric, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Westminster is sponsoring these forums as a service to the community, and in particular to the downtown community, of which Westminster, with the extension of the mall and the fast development of this area, feels increasingly identified. Many of us who work and or live downtown, and, and not we only, as we come and go from our business and about our business, I think we'll agree have a, a pervasive sense of of dis-ease, a feeling that, that many things are, are out of control, certainly beyond our influence, and not least of all in the international sphere. And we long for voices of keen intelligence and moral tenacity to guide our thinking, to influence our course, and to renew our confidence about the future of the nation and of the world community. And so Westminster is bringing such voices to the city for all who choose to hear. Now, before introducing today's guest, and I all know we are eager to hear what he has to say and as quickly as possible, but let me quickly outline several procedural matters. At approximately 12.30, our guest will conclude his formal remarks. He's not, uh, he's not uh, on a line there. It's not a, the law of the Medes and the Persians. He's a professor, and we understand the professors tend to speak for 50 minutes at a gallop, but we talked about that. Uh, we'll pause. Those who must leave will be given the, uh, the chance to do so. At that same time, you'll have a chance to use those yellow cards in the pew card racks to jot down any questions that you have, to pass them to the ushers. They'll be brought forward, and a committee of two will go through them and, and bring up the, the, the representative ones that I'll then present to our speaker. Also, before leaving today, would you please take a moment to fill out the, the blue card that's uh, in each of the places. Fill it out, take a moment to do so, and then just leave it there. It helps us to know that you were here. Uh, coffee and tea and cookies will be available in the downstairs dining room following this program. Indeed, they're available now in front of a TV monitor for those who must eat their lunch during the program. Our guest today is Roger Fisher. Among his many credentials, I shall share just two. Since 1960 and through the present, he has been, is, professor of law at Harvard Law School, with, with emphasis, I understand, on international law. And he's consultant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. In his role at Harvard, among many roles, I understand that he gives a course for undergraduates entitled Coping with International Conflict. Professor Fisher, please count us among your enrollees as you share with us today your, your theme, one that uh, couldn't be more current, namely Iran, what next? Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Meisel. <clears throat> I've been allowed this noon to give you an ethical perspective. 
that is a great relief from one who is asked to give an historical view or a legal view or a cultural view or a military view or a political view. And let me start by advancing some ethical propositions. I think I will uh, I'll focus on Iran. We can deal with the Arab-Israeli question and qu issue in questions if we want to. But let me advance five propositions, which I call ethical propositions, and <clears throat> I will expand on them. You may talk me out of them during the question period, but at the moment I think they're pretty good. Uh, the first is that we should ask good questions. There is an ethical responsibility to ask what ought to be done. Iran, what next, for most journalists, is please predict what's going to happen. We are all spectators. Let's watch it. Please just predict what's going to happen. It's inevitable. We can't do anything about it. Tell me. I believe that is not a, uh, an adequate question in terms of what you think is going to happen. I believe it's not adequate to say what has happened. Uh, I'm afraid when Walter Cronkite comes on evening news and says, that's the way it is, he is saying, and don't you try and change it. Implicitly, he's saying, that's the way it is. You're just spectators. I'm telling you about it. I've told you the way it has to be. Don't rock the boat. That's the way it is. I think that the concern of the values that we share and which we bring us here is that we should not just react, not just sit and guess what's going to happen, and not even just judge as moral judges. Let's take the Iranian-Iraq question. We are perfectly prepared to judge Iran. Their behavior in seizing Americans is illegal, outrageous, immoral, and we know it. Many of us go home self-satisfied with that question, just as the Iranians with whom I speak know that we don't give a damn about international law. We helped overthrow Mossadegh in 1953. Uh, Kim Roosevelt in his book explains how the CIA helped stir this up. And the students, other militants in the embassy in Iran who took the hostages, uh, are absolutely convinced that the United States doesn't really care about international law. Why would we have covered operations? Why would we have overthrown Allende? They are prepared to judge us, and they think they find it's worse to overthrow a country and help maintain a Shah in office for 25 years than it is to seize an embassy and hold people for weeks or months. That's their judging. I think the question of who's right and who's wrong is not an adequate question. The <clears throat> the question of what ought we to do is a question I think one has to ask. Iran, what should we do? Machiavelli asked a very good question. What advice would you give a prince? His book lives today not because of his advice, but because of the question he asked. What's the best advice we can come up with? What is it that ought to be done? Uh, I disagree with many of his conclusions, but I welcome his question. I think that we are ethically obliged ourselves to ask that question and not just write the book that Machiavelli might have written, Princes I Have Known, uh, Backstage with the Prince Business, 
uh, <clears throat> inside the castle behind the White House, whatever it was. No, no. What ought advisors advise? If we will take his question, we will have had the, answered my first moral imperative. <clears throat> my second ethical imperative is to question any physically imposed result. We do not believe in domination. We can claim values of, of uh, freedom. Uh, we should look with great askance on any attempt by us to physically impose a result on somebody else. We do not want results imposed upon us. We do not believe that might makes right. I didn't say we could abandon the use of force. I say we are ethically obliged to be very skeptical when we think we can solve a political problem by military means. There were those who thought we could solve the hostage question by military means. Uh, I'm at least on record of, as of the 5th of November of saying it was impossible to get the hostages out by military means, and so far the Pentagon has not proven me wrong by their uh, blundered attempt. But even if they had succeeded against all the odds in getting people out of Iran, they would not have solved the problem. The problem was not that 50 people are, are there. The problem is disrespect for international law. The problem is political antagonisms, conflict, and so forth. And that's not going to be solved by having helicopters come in and take 50 people out. Secretary Vance, as you know, resigned, believing that the decision was extremely immoral, unwise, that if we had succeeded, they would have taken the 200 Americans who were still in Iran as hostages. I was told by an ambassador in a Mediterranean country that he thought that if we had succeeded, that probably six other countries would have seized Americans in our embassies there and held them as hostage in protest for our intrusion in trying to dominate Iran. Uh, maybe half of them might have succeeded. Uh, the, the notion that we can solve the political problem of making the world work by hardware is a myth, a myth that uh, we should not rely upon. But basically, ethically, we are obliged to be skeptical about a military solution. We do not believe in imposed solutions. A third ethical obligation is to understand how others see things. No matter how wise we may think we are, we do not know the problem until we know how someone else sees it. The problem is that they see it differently. The problem is that their concerns are different than ours. You cannot solve a problem by coming at it from a conflict problem, a dispute, a difference, a conflict such as that between the United States and Iran, between Iran and Iraq, between the Arabs and the Israelis. You cannot solve that by saying, I know the answer, I've studied it. It's trying to solve a custody dispute between two parents. Suppose there's a fight over their daughter as who has custody. There's no way by studying the child you can solve the conflict. You can't weigh the child, measure the child, and deal with it. The problem is the way they see it, the way the mother or the father each feels about it. The problem here is in the heads of the people we're dealing with. And we are obliged, before we come up with answers, we are ethically obliged, morally obliged, to understand that problem. My fourth ethical imperative is to insist on a principled solution 
to insist that the matter be decided according to some standards. We need not insist that it be our principles. We can understand other principles. We can understand equity as well as law. We can understand uh, standards of, of precedent in different societies. But it must be a principled solution. It should not be just because they ask for it or just because we ask for it. The negotiation over the hostage release has been greatly complicated by the discussion of ransom. How much ransom should we pay? How much blackmail should we pay? There is no moral answer to that question in those terms. We are obliged, but if you reach for principle, it's not hard. We should pay no ransom. We should be prepared to do anything for Iran to which they would have been legally or morally entitled without the hostages, but not one extra cent because of the hostages. They should get everything they could have gotten on November 3rd last year, to which they were entitled, not because they have the hostages, but because they were entitled to it then. Nothing extra for the hostages. Once you grab on principles, we have a basis for dealing with it. And you can talk to Iranians. You say, do you really want things you're not entitled to? They say, no, we're only asking for our rights. I say, all right, that basis we can discuss. We can discuss what your rights are. Should we acknowledge your grievances? Should we admit mistakes of the past? Are you entitled to a pledge of non-intervention? Certainly. The moral, bringing the moral question in makes it possible, makes it morally possible to solve this question in an ethical fashion. And incidentally, I teach negotiation at the law school and to lawyers and business people. Let me urge you as a key guide to negotiation to argue over criteria and principles, not over figures. Uh, are we going to, a student of mine went in to settle an automobile accident last week. His car was totaled by a truck. And he went into the insurance company and the insurance adjuster said to him, well, we've looked at the, here's your, 30, here's your settlement check of $3,300. He said, what's the principle? She said, are you rejecting it? He said, you, I have to under, get a fair settlement. What is the theory how I, $3,300? Uh, what's your standard? I couldn't find a car like that to replace this one. Where did you find it? Uh, where can I get it? What about the excise tax? Where am I going? And she said, all right, $3,500. That's, <laughs> that's our top price company policy. Do you reject it? And he said, if it's, if it's the fair figure, of course I'll accept it. But convince me by what standard you reach that figure. Where did you get that from? The blue book? Secondhand car values? Ads in the papers? Where did you get it from? Without his having accepted or rejected the figure, next week he was given $4,000 based on $3,800. $150 being the market value and the excise tax added on came to $4,000 because that was what principles indicated. He came back quite, he said, Roger, it really works. <laughs> the stuff we've been teaching works. <clears throat> Standards, principles are ethically required and very useful. My final uh, proposal, if I can find where my notes have disappeared to. The, the, uh, the final demand is participation. I see an ethical obligation to let others participate in the result and an obligation ourselves to participate in the result. I think that one, there is no right answer to a result which does not include the participation of people in it. There's no way I can come up with an answer 
to how to get along with my teenage son when that was his age. There was no solution I could produce. I couldn't come to him and say, Elliot, I've, we have a problem in our relationship. I've now decided that every Saturday morning from 10 to 12, we will do something or other. There, I mean, there's, he has to participate in the problem. It's a relationship problem. It has to be worked out. There is no answer. There's no way the whites of South Africa can announce a successful biracial constitution or multiracial constitution without the participation of those people who are going to be affected. They are morally entitled to have a say in that answer, and <clears throat> as we are in any problem in which we are involved. Now, those are five ethical propositions. Let me now set aside ethics and in the most ruthless, pragmatic fashion give you five principles of hard pragmatism for dealing with the Iranian question. The first is to ask good questions. Be purposive. You will, there's no chance of accomplishing your purpose unless you know what it is. There's no chance, pragmatically, of doing very well unless you know what you are trying to do. So you are pragmatically involved to figure out what is the best thing to do and how do you get there? How, what are we trying to do and how ought we go about it? You have to ask the same question that Machiavelli asked. What advice would you give a prince? What are his proper objectives and what are the means for getting there? Pragmatism demands that you ask the very same question that ethics demands as to purpose. Where are you trying to go? How do you go there? You've got to ask the right question. Secondly, a tough, hard, pragmatic approach says question any physically imposed results. Military answers are unlikely to work. In terms of the kind of advice I give the Pentagon, in terms of sheer capacity, in this day of nuclear weapons, highly intricate society, there's no way to make the world work by blowing it up. We, we cannot pump oil in the Persian Gulf with tactical nuclear weapons. We cannot produce good relations between ourselves and Iran by military hardware. We cannot restore principles of international order by ourselves going charging around with military hardware. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Humpty Dumpty together again. And the answer is not get more horses and more men. The problem is more serious than that. The, you know that you can't solve your family problems with dynamite in the house. You can't make Minneapolis work by blowing it up. Uh, military solutions are very rarely solutions to the problem. There's almost no problem. I would say as far as nuclear weapons are concerned, there is no problem, which is so bad that it'll be better to have nuclear war than have that problem continue one more day and try to solve it by other means. The myth, a, a pure notion that there is other things. So pure pragmatism, again, demands the same proposition which ethics says. Question imposed results. And here, look at what happens. You can't do it. It doesn't work. I run an exercise. I'll be doing it later this month in Rome for the NATO Defense College on uh, various scenarios to train them how to relate force to purpose. And I, last spring, we gave them one on a war in Europe. And I gave them a scenario very much like the Polish 
strike, but it was in East Germany, and it got out of hand, and Russian troops were called in, and the East Germans invited the West Germans to help them against the Russians, and we had a good war going. And I said, somebody else is fighting the war. Your job is to send the message on the hotline to Moscow. What's the purpose of this war, and how do you propose to accomplish it? And they said, the purpose is, of course, to win. I said, let's see, what do you mean? Are you going to conquer the Soviet Union acre by acre to the Pacific? Clearly not. The only way you can, quote, win the war is to get the Russians to make a decision. What's the decision you want them to make? Unconditional surrender? Don't be crazy. Turns out that military, you cannot impose the result in that situation, and there's almost no situation where a hardware solution provides a solution to the values we have. Therefore, you come to my third pragmatic imperative, understand the other side understand how they see things. Our success in any conflict depends upon what someone else thinks and decides. Where we cannot impose our result, the only way we can get the hostages released is by Iran to decide to release them, if we cannot physically take them out with a can opener, as we cannot. If we care about our reputation and international order, that depends upon what other people think, how they see us, how they see our reputation, and how we want to have them see it in the future. If the purpose of our action is to affect how others think, we must understand how they think today. Many people talked the Iranians were behaving in a crazy fashion last year. They may have been emotionally upset when they seized the hostages, but for most of the time they held them, they were behaving highly rationally. Let's look at their choice. What's the choice? Make a balance sheet for the, for the uh, students, and some of them are students. Uh, they want to know whether it's going to interfere with getting to UCLA next year and things like that. Uh, they really are students, I assure you. Uh, <clears throat> students can behave very badly. The, on the balance sheet, some students say, should we release the hostages? This has been their choice most of the last 10 months. If we say yes, we look weak, big minus. We back down the United States, big minus. We get nothing, big minus. And question mark, we don't know what the United States is going to do. If we keep the hostages, big plus, we look strong, big plus, we stand up the United States, big plus, we get fantastic television coverage on ABC News, uh, more than we could ever get before. We may get the Shah, or at least some of his money. Uh, and another big plus, we can always let them go later if that turns out to be the thing to do. Their choice, every incentive was to keep them. In fact, if you were there advising them and they said, should we let them go today or can we get a commitment of the United States not to intervene, not to overthrow us, uh, to let end sanctions, to give us back some of our assets, you would say, wait a couple of days and get those commitments, uh, get the United States buttoned up. So pragmatically, to deal with the problem, the first question is, how do they see it? How do they understand it? Because we're trying to change their choice. We'd like their choice, and this is what uh, Mr. Saunders and Mr. Christopher are doing today in Algeria. We'd like to give them a choice where if they say yes, they know what's going to happen. It ends sanctions. It <clears throat> frees up some of their money. They can get some notion of political success. The United States acknowledges it will not intervene, so forth. We are trying to change their choice. 
the engineering of changing their choice is to understand their choice, understand their minds today, and figure out how to change it. Will threats change it? Maybe. Not necessarily. Last January, the military, some military spokesman said there are a number of military options we have, some to be used before the hostages are released, and some which could be used after they are released. That didn't get much play in this country. It was the front page of Tehran. The United States planning military measures against us the minute we release the hostages. If anybody ought to be court-martialed, it would be the military officer who, trying to show how on the ball he was, conveyed the notion that we have a threat to use military action the minute they release the hostages to punish him. Even the White House in January said releasing the hostages will not wipe the slate clean. A clear implication that we were going to be nasty to them and punish them afterwards. Uh, those statements are counterproductive. I'm talking sheer, pragmatic terms. Look at the other guy's head, figure out what they see, figure out what you're offering them, and how you're going to change their choice. Language is important. Whatever we say sounds differently there. We say we might be prepared to normalize relations. On their side, that sounds like back to the good old days of the Shah, CIA, and Savak, back to what the United States thought was normal. The words don't mean the same thing. Uh, I was, when Iranian, the ambassador of the UN, Mansour Farhang, who's now back in Tehran, said that when Mr. Valtheim came back, he asked me, he said, you know what the word compromise means? I said, compromise is a fine word, give and take. He said, what else does compromise mean in English? Well, I said, yes, you can say our security was compromised, our principles were compromised, a woman's virtue was compromised. He said, yes, that's all that compromise means in Farsi. How about mediator? My favorite word in the English language, I said. He said, not in Farsi. In Farsi, mediator means meddler, interloper, Barinsky, some neighbor who barges in and tell you what to do. And guess what Mr. Valtheim said when he arrived at the airport? I'm here as a mediator to work out a compromise. <laughs> An hour later, his car was being stoned. Uh, we, if we are going to communicate effectively, we have to know what we're talking about. We broke diplomatic relations. A friend of mine, a journalist, everyone in their papers the next day on the phone, I was talking with him in Tehran. He said, Roger, you could have gotten the hostages for that. I said, what? He said, breaking diplomatic relations, they're dancing in the streets. You have given up keeping a big embassy here. That's really what they wanted. Have you give up this great American compound? If you had promised to give it up, I think you could have gotten the hostages for that. And we were thinking we were punishing them by doing it. No, if you're dealing in a conflict of this kind, any kind, you want to understand their thinking and understand it well. For purely pragmatic reasons, you should insist on principle. Insisting on principle negotiations now with the hostages allows us to say we can do something for you, but not too much. When they say, how about doing everything, we say no. We can't do that. Reagan would kill the administration for paying blackmail, that kind of It has to be a principled solution. We can give you what you're entitled to, no more, no less. It protects us from giving too much. It also allows us to do something to get out of the problem. Yes, we can give you what you're entitled to. Principle is a very powerful weapon. Don't give it up. Pragmatism says you can be firm on your principles and flexible in the application, and that's do it. Finally, the fifth pragmatic principle is to insist on participation. We should insist that the Iranians participate in understanding our problem. They can't say, solve the problem, let go of the assets. We say, no, look, here's the problem. 
You've got some legitimate claims, debts against you that you owe. We can't solve that waving the wand. The president's not the Shah. He's not a dictator. We've got some laws. We have our democratic sides. You've got yours. But we can't, the president can't wave his wand and get rid of these legal claims. Make them participate in understanding our problem. Similarly, participate in understanding theirs. We should share the problem. Most people see negotiations as a face-to-face -face confrontation, which they, they confuse the person with the problem. You're standing there, the problem is you. We've got to turn that side by side. We are sharing the problem. There's your problem and there's our problem. And we've got problems to deal with. Our relationship may be in question, but that's not the problem. The problem is dealing with the pragmatic issues out there. Our problem, you've got your problems in Iran, we've got our problems legally here, politically here. Let's jointly solve that problem. Skilled negotiation is participation. You make their problem ours and our problem theirs. You put them on the table and deal with them. Now, participation is not just at the governmental level. If I said there's an ethical obligation to participate and a pragmatic obligation to participate, I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about us. In Washington, it may look a long way from Minneapolis. You may think, what can we do to affect things there? I can tell you, in Washington, they look as though they're tied up. They feel tied up by public opinion. How can we do what you say, Fisher? Public opinion thinks there's a military solution. We have to put sanctions on in order to get the public to understand us. The United States last year, the question was very clear when it started. The question was, can, can Iran coerce the United States by holding hostages, by holding diplomats and demanding the head of the state be returned? On that issue, we had every country in the world on our side. Not a single ambassador in any country favored holding ambassadors. Surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> diplomats, the poor Iranians, they made a terrible mistake. If they had seized some multinational corporate officials and demanded some multinational assets, they would have had a much stronger position. They seized diplomats, and all diplomats agreed diplomats shouldn't be seized. They asked for the return of the head of state, and guess what all heads of state agree upon? Heads of state shouldn't be sent back for punishment. As long as the issue was, can Iran coerce the United States, the world was with us. Long about December and 1st of January, for political purposes, the United States converted that question, can we coerce Iran? Can we make them release the hostages? By economic sanctions, by threats and leverage, can we make them do it? We divided our friends, we united the Iranians. We turned the issue from one where we had the answer in our pocket to one where they had the answer in their pocket. The answer was, no, you can't coerce us. Why do we do that? Because the public was silent. Because the public didn't understand the Iranian concerns. Because the public thought there were military solutions. They liked to think there were simple answers. Because concerned citizens did not speak up and say, hey, what's going on here? What can we do? What can't we do? What ought to be done? I've got, I guess I've got five questions for you to answer. Ask good questions. Question physically imposed results. Understand how others see things. Insist on principle. And insist on participation for yourselves in working that out. Insist, don't just vote once every few years. Try to affect the moral and political climate that determine what we do. So what next in Iran is a question of what ought to be done next. And the questions I can give very specifically in the negotiations going on, but I want to lay the foundation for that. I think there's an ethical imperative that we be extremely pragmatic 
in a pragmatic imperative that we behave ethically. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Fisher. We'll take a brief break now to allow those who must leave to do so and allow the others of you who wish to do so to fill out your question card and to pass it to the aisle, uh, whereupon an usher will bring it forward. We'll just take a couple of minutes for this uh, part of the procedure. Do you have something for me yet? When I introduced our, our theme and our reason for being here and what Westminster is trying to do, I said that we had uh, we were very intentional about bringing voices here of keen intelligence and moral tenacity, and I feel that that combination has been very, very evident here today, and I, I want to just begin by thanking you, sir, for what you've shared with us. We do have que some questions uh, to the front now, and the first one I'd like to read to you runs as follows. Our relationship with the Saudis is now crucial. Do you foresee any prospect of Islamic revolution in Saudi Arabia? I think one has to be concerned when any society as feudal in many ways as the Saudi society is confronts the 20th century and when the assets they have are as great as they are. Whether it's an Islamic revolution, whether it's a democratic socialist revolution, whether it's a change, whether from the outside or whether it's a genuine domestic change, I think that the Saudis are properly concerned, as they are, with how they go from their present uh, group decision-making of the royal family uh, to a society that is responsive to the demands of the 21st century and what's going to be on ahead. Uh, I think there's a real risk. Uh, I was talking with Mr. Primakov, the Soviet head of the Middle Eastern Institute, and I said, how can you help me convince my American friends that the Russians do not intend to march in and take over the Gulf with superior military force? He said, that should be easy. Just tell the Americans we're going to wait until there's a revolution in Saudi Arabia. The Americans will be on the wrong side of the revolution. We'll be on the right side. And without lifting a gun, we will have a pro-Soviet government there within the next 10 or 20 years, uh, certainly. Why should we cause a confrontation and the risk of war when we have every expectation that revolutionary forces will throw, overthrow that regime. You can't expect that kind of a king to go governing for how many more decades. Uh, I found his argument persuasive and somewhat disconcerting. <laughs> Thank you. Why is there such difficulty in getting a direct answer in negotiations with Iran? We, are, we in the United States are spoiled by dealing with dictators. We like to deal with nice, attractive dictators like Sandhurst-educated King Hussein of Jordan or pro-American President Sadat of Egypt. When we talk with them, they say yes, and they say no, and we have a decision. Most of the countries of the world have to deal with the United States, however. And the Soviet Union finds that when they've spent seven years negotiating a SALT treaty uh, with the president, only to have the Senate say, we are rejecting it. Uh, they discover that you get something with the Pentagon only to have the State Department put a stop to it. That you've got something with the, the President only to have Congress not vote the money. A democracy means putting up with checks and balances 
putting up with confusion. We had a revolution in 1776. Thirteen years later, in 1789, we adopted a constitution, and we were prepared to do business with other countries. For 13 years, there was dealing with the Articles of Confederation, there was almost no way in which foreigners could get any kind of a decision out of the United States in any way we were so divided. And yet here we expect a government which has had a drastic revolution, and it's not just a coup d'etat. The revolution in Iran is more like the French Revolution. In every city and town in Iran, you have committees sitting discussing what to do about the schools, what to do about land, what to do about roads, what to do about water. What to do. It's a real revolution. And <clears throat> you have a division of authority between President Banisada with limited authority. You have authority in the ministries, foreign affairs, finance, authority in the central bank, dealing with the claims questions. We now have the Madras. It's very clear that even Mr. Rafsanjani, and Speaker of the House, and Mr. Beheshti, head of the IRP, the Islamic Republican Party, cannot easily maintain tight discipline against a filibuster or the kind of, of quorum-defeating tactics that occurred uh, the day, two days before the election in Iran. The reason it's hard to get a decision is they've got a lot of different ideas, and they've got a society in organization in which those different ideas are being expressed. That doesn't make it convenient. It makes it very frustrating. Uh, but that's why it is hard to get a decision. Mm -hmm. What do you think our response should have been to the hostage situation a year ago? Hey, this was made as a crisis. And clearly, for the first few moments, it was a crisis. Uh, some 60, 65 Americans uh, seized, being held by a group of students whom the government was not then intervening and later came out to support. Uh, a crisis is a crisis because there are high stakes, great uncertainty, and a short time. I believe that we should have tried to deal with that crisis by making it not a crisis. We should try by decreasing the stakes. Instead of saying, this is the most important thing in the world going on, we should have put those lives in context. We've had prisoners of war in North Korea for years. We had a few Americans held in China for 20 years. We had prisoners of North Vietnam for many years. We should have recognized that when somebody is held, whether it's in a Turkish prison or in China, Korea, Vietnam, or in Iran, that we physically cannot do anything about it, that the answer to that is in their hands. Since they can hold the answer, we should make it a very unimportant problem. We should give them as little reward for that as we can. We should not exaggerate its importance. We killed, since the hostages were taken, those 53 lives have been held now for, for a, more than a year. During that time, we in the United States have killed 50,000 people in auto accidents. I think we have to look at those 53 lives in terms of their life, in terms in a context of reality, tough as it is. The questions of principle are very important. And those principles should be maintained by saying, we're not going to do anything for you that you would not have gotten anyway. We've decided that, and the president should not have said, I'm a victim of this. I've got to stay in the Rose Garden. This is the centerpiece of our foreign policy. I would have asked the television stations to not build this up. They have a right to if they want to. The First Amendment allows them to be idiots. It doesn't require them to be idiots. <laughs> I 
I would have made, lowered the stakes, made our answer certain. The answer is you get anything from us you can show us you're entitled to without the hushes, nothing more. That's the answer. We're going about our business. The Deputy Assistant Secretary of State will communicate with you whenever you want to communicate with him. And I would have bought more time. I would have said the Pueblo crew was there for 11 months. We expect this to go on for a long time because despite Iran's principles, we think it'll take them some time to get shaped up and go about our other business. We, they weren't holding America hostage. They were holding 53 people, about as many are as in the, were in the jail in Mexico for various drug offenses and other places. We made ourselves hostage by our actions of making that a big case, a big case in which the longer they held us, the longer they could manipulate us. Crisis management means decreasing the stakes, providing a certain answer, and stretching out the time. When Iran equates religion and the state and sees us as infidels, where do you see the areas that joint participation can occur? We, I think we've learned how to separate questions. I think we can deal with uh, matters. We can't say we like you, we dislike you, we've added up all your virtues and therefore you're just past the middle line as being a friend rather than enemy. We have to stand on each issue as it comes up, and we're prepared to be amicable, we disagree violently. In Suez, Britain and France and Israel attacked Egypt. And Mr. Eisenhower and Mr. Dulles said, I'm sorry, you're our good allies, but that behavior is unacceptable. That's wrong. It doesn't mean we don't like Britain and France, doesn't mean we're not allies. This is wrong. Here you're right. And I think we can say, when Iran says that, that religion entitles them to overthrow, to try and overthrow Iraq, by radio broadcast, we say, no, that's dead wrong. Your internal affairs are your business. You can have this, but you can't do that. We will jam those radio stations. We will provide things to protect people from overthrowing. Uh, we will physically prevent that right and wrong. I think we can deal with trade. We can deal with that. The principles of law are pretty good. We can say no more embassy than you want to have. If you don't want diplomatic relations, we'll carry on our business through the interest section of Algeria, or we can carry it on through our UN missions at New York. You have a perfect right to ask us to reduce the embassy staff. Uh, we, have, we, can, we can look at our problems. We don't have to agree with someone any more than I have to agree with people within this country of different religious views or different political views. No more than I have to agree with those who voted for Governor Reagan. I didn't. But that doesn't mean I can't do an awful lot of other business with them and transact and discuss politics. I think we have many common interests, particularly making the world work, as I say. The oil, trade, living. We want that country to work. We don't want it to be a Soviet stooge. We don't want it to be an American stooge. We want their society to function. That's what they want to function. They're tired of having to be dictated by us as they see it. They're, they have a legitimate grievance. It doesn't mean they behave right in response to it, but they've got some legitimate grievances. Let's get on with it. I think we can cooperate in many areas. Mm -hmm. It has been said that Iran would never have taken over the Soviet embassy. Would you respond to that? The, the, uh, the, when this was, took place in November last year, the President of the Security Council was the Bolivian ambassador. Turned out to be a former student of mine who asked me to come down to the UN for a few days, see what could be done. Uh, during that time, I had a discussion with the Soviet ambassador. And I must say, as I say, everybody agreed with the United States. This is outrageous policy. Uh, don't put up with it, et cetera, et cetera. I asked the Russians, I said, what do you think about this problem? He said, you know, when they took over our embassy, they killed everybody in it. I said, 
what? He said, you know, the Iranians took over the Russian embassy and murdered everybody. I said, when? He said, 1830. <laughs> he insisted on an apology. And the apology was to have the then sultan, or whatever he was, Iran, take the crown off his head and with his own hands tear out a jewel and give it to each family that had lost somebody in the slaughter. And the apology was that. Uh, it's not true. They, the Iranians took over, can just as easily sack the Soviet embassy uh, as an American embassy. They did the, they weren't they like the Tsar in 1830. Uh, we, the image that we are softies being kicked around is not the image shared in the rest of the world. The image in the rest of the world is the United States is a dominating, CIA hiring, nuclear threatening, militaristic power that spends more on money, burns up, lives high on the hog and says the oil is ours and we gotta have it ours. The image that's come across has been of arrogance, brutality, toughness, and lack of care. I don't think that's the only image. I think the Peace Corps image, the image of idealism, I think President Carter's human rights in the first year changed the tone. But no one took this as a deliberate act because they thought it was going to be easy or because they thought the United States was soft. They did it from rage at the United States continuing to assume that we could run that part of the world because we were friends of the Shah. It was reaction to our assumed dominance, not because we were passive, in my estimate. Mm -hmm. Many of your comments are based on insisting on principle and on understanding the other's perspective. What are the princi principles of Islam that are in conflict with our Western principles, and how do you perceive the Ayatollah Khomeini's role as the leader of the Islam principles? A lot of Many of the principles are similar. Many of the much of the ideology of Islam is not unlike that of, of uh, values of the Jewish tradition, values of the Christian tradition. As you know, the Quran, the theory of Muhammad is that he's the third great prophet after the prophets of old, after the first series of prophets after Christ, that Christ and his values are one of the great, we are people of the book, Christians, Jews are people of the book as Muslims are of the last prophet. The basic moral values which they cling to are the same. Just to an extent in both Israel, where religion has become separated for many people from those values, the Orthodox Jewish uh, religious existence is come apart from the values of their society. The same is true in Islam. Islam is a rigidity of, of if you read, there's what a book called The Sayings of Ayatollah Khomeini, which has translations of some of his uh, statements. A very rigid, wooden interpretation of the Quran, exactly how to wash your hands, how to do this, what to do in a fast, what to do. It's a very technical, uh, uh, legalistic, as a lawyer I will say, with no one knowing I'm damning anybody else than myself, a legalistic answer to what it's about. But I, I think we can talk with principles. You can talk, when, I, when dealing with Iran on this question of, do they really want extortion? No. They want nothing more than that to which they're entitled. They want to pay their just debts. That's the value. They, they do not want to be thought of as unprincipled. And that, that enough. Okay, let's, let's sit down and think about these principles and work with them. Like, I'm not going to try and give you a synthesis of, of Christian, Western, and Islamic principles in the next minute, but I think that once we're talking on principle, just as on, on uh, 
in any transaction, it changed it from a question of will. We're not giving it to them because they demand it. We're giving it to them because they got some good principles. If we're trying to settle a price and someone says replacement cost and someone says discounted depreciated cost, I can talk about those. We can, we can work about those principles because we're not just saying I'm giving in to you because you demand it or you're giving in to me because I demand it. We shift the debate from a contest of will to a contest of principle. And there, if we both believe in a principled solution, we can work on those principles. What is your feeling about the present negotiations wherein we are not meeting directly with the Iranians but talking to them through the Algerians? It's, it's very tough. The, right from the beginning, Iranians uh, were reluctant to have official contacts with the United States, and we've made the situation worse by breaking diplomatic relations. We cut that telephone line. Incidentally, I think one of the craziest forms of communicating is to cut the telephone line. Uh, it sends a message on one day, but it handicaps uh, what you're trying to do every day thereafter. And I think breaking diplomatic relations as a symbolic way of protesting is a self-defeating one. It is very difficult. The Algerians find it particularly difficult dealing with the internal divisions in Iran. They have to talk to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, even though they know that uh, Beheshti and Rafsanjani and the Majlis are important because they are accredited to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and it's very hard. The, if the Algerians can be persuaded to take on an active role of trying to produce the answer, trying to produce what I call a single negotiating text. If they can go back and say to the Americans, what would be wrong with this? What would be wrong with this? Mark it up. What would be wrong with this? And finally come up with an answer and say, Here's, we now recommend this to both of you, that would be far easier than our just sending messages to each other uh, through a switchboard, whether it's the Swiss or, the, in this case, the Algerians. It's a very difficult negotiating procedure. We, have the, either, we look as though we're taking their terms or they look as though they're taking our terms. And you'd, a, a mediator can play a role. The role that, that was played at Camp David in the United States was just that. We went back and forth with drafts. I'm not asking for a concession. Just criticize this draft. I'm thinking of making a recommendation to you. After you've understood what the situation is, you come up with a recommendation which both sides can accept. Uh, maybe the Algerian foreign ministry is in that process now. Does our special relationship with Israel constitute a strategic asset, as Regan has said, or a political military burden? Or a political military burden. Burden. Well, certainly in financial terms, of course, it's a billions of $2 billion a year economic burden. It also is a political burden in the sense that we appear to be giving Israel a veto over what we do. Uh, one's power in a negotiation does not depend upon military power. Again, uh, in the current negotiations over the West Bank and autonomy, once Israel is more powerful than the United States. Here is Begin with inflation at 125%, 27% popularity ratings in the polls, uh, financially dependent on the United States. And here we are giving them billions of dollars a year, military arms, powerful position. And yet in those negotiations, Israel is more powerful. Why? Because Israel knows what it's going to do if no agreement is reached. I say, in any negotiations, know your BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Israel knows if we don't agree, we will do what we're doing. We'll build settlements, we'll go ahead, we'll go along fine. The United States has no BATNA. We don't know what we'll do without an agreement. We're saying, Israel, please agree with us this week. If not, agree with us next week. If not, we'll try again next week. 
instead of saying, if you don't want to prepare a plan, we'll talk with some others and prepare a plan. We'll talk with the Palestinians, we'll talk with other people, we'll prepare our own plan, and we'll try and submit it to the people over your head. Uh, it'll try and provide security, but we have an alternative to go forward. I think that we have to free the concept of being a very close friend of Israel's, very concerned with their interests, from the notion that, that it is the only political answer in this country is let that government decide what we do every day. It's not good for Israel. It's not, I mean, uh, no one, uh, Malcolm Goldman, others, major leaders of the Jewish community have said, look, at least be a friend enough to give us honest advice. At least be a friend, be independent to tell us what you think. Don't just let the politics of Israel dominate what the role you can play in our country. In that sense, I think Israel is an obstacle. It's certainly, uh, in terms of vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, I, I don't think it, it uh, is a help. Uh, I think it's a country entitled to exist on its own right and shouldn't just exist because it's a help to the Soviet Union. I think it's got nothing to do with it. But in terms of Soviet analysis, the Russians, Russian told me once, he said, you know, without Israel, he said, we're very much for Israel. I said, why? He said, because without Israel, every Arab state would be pro-American. If it weren't here, they are so close to us, they'd all be afraid of us and be on your side. Thank God for Israel, because it lets us have some influence in the Arab world. Now, there's a measure of truth in that. And I think that Israel's rights should be based on the right of the people, the right of the concern, and not a puppet in a U.S.-Soviet gang. And we should not come around demeaning them, but saying the only reason we're supporting you is because you're a big asset against the Soviet Union. I think it, that's not the reason to support them, and it's not a very good reason uh, to support them. Apparently, the media failed to educate the U.S. public between November 79 and January 80, hence no informed public opinion. Please comment on role of media, TV, papers, and so Yes, I think they're terrible. Uh, <laughs> I was in, in that time, just, just in, in the uh, week before Christmas, I guess it was, I was on the Today Show, with, and Brokaw said, well, I was criticizing the media. I said, look, you're rewarding terrorism. <clears throat> There's nothing we can do, the government can do, that gives them half the reward that you do with, with terrible television, all this television coverage. He said, what would you have us do? And I thought he meant NBC News, and so I told him right between the eyes what I'd have him do. And when I talked to my son later by phone, I said, Peter, how was I on television? He says, great, Dad, but you're a little bit naive. He said, uh, you don't criticize NBC News on NBC News. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't you ever want to get on again? And <clears throat> later the day, the vice president of NBC News, Gordon Manning, called me up and asked me to come in. I thought, boy, they really are sensitive. And he said, you know, Mr. Fisher, he said, what you said this morning struck home about we're being manipulated by these student militants. He said, I have to tell you, it's worse than you think. Every morning, the students call up our local producer in Tehran and say, this morning, the demonstration will be at 11.30. Get there early. The man comes in an empty street, and here is CBS, ABC, NBC, BBC, Japanese television, French television, all lined up. And he says, where are the Dutch? Late again, you know. And <clears throat> crew comes. Everybody here? Everything working? All right. And around the corner they go. There are trucks and buses of several hundred people lined up, and they let them out of the trucks and buses, hand them placards, death to Carter, coach them, and they all march toward the, set, the cameras as a script, shouting. And then they march past, and then the student entrepreneur says, everybody get it? Any retakes necessary? 
got it all, okay, see you tomorrow. <clears throat> and he said, our system so loves visual material that even when we tell the people don't get manipulated, they say, well, look, we'll take the pictures and headquarters can cut it out. No. And the system thrived on this. ABC News established an evening program and just did beautifully with it. All the networks were doing fine. And they, in fact, were giving rewards to terrorism far in excess of anything that the United States. We put those people on the map. We made that thing the biggest event in history. We have encouraged more terrorism by publicity than anything the United States could now do or refrain from doing. If every single student served 20 years in prison, that wouldn't offset in any way the damage done by publicity to this, this form of terrorism, making these people the heroes, covering them every day, making them world figures. And that we did to ourselves. That we did by this notion that if the First Amendment permits it, if it'll make money, it's smart. And I think we have to uh, get rid of that ethic. I think it's going to require people saying, what are you doing? Why are you rewarding these people? Why, why are you making this look like a grand world-shaking event uh, what these people do it. Why do you let a handful of people dominate the world for a year by your, the media, giving this attention? No, I, I, uh, I've been in the television business. I've, I ran the advocates the first year. I set it up and ran it the first year on public television. I've done another one. And I know some of the lure of it, but I think that uh, those of us who have worked in the media have a special responsibility to do better. Thank you.